Alright, here we go. Take one. <laughs> Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into our sometimes hostile world declaring eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo. You know, challenging something is one thing, but fixing those things is a tall order. You know, with tens of millions of Americans living below the poverty line, with what has been called the new Jim Crow laws, mass incarceration has grown the prison population to eight times what it was at the end of his life. Despite similar usage rates across races, people of color and more likely to be arrested and incarcerated in the war on drugs. This is an endless war that is within our country, our people, and justified by misguided, inaccurate, and mostly racial prejudices. Please stay tuned as we speak with Brian Winters. He is a man who has big ideas that maybe can help these problems. I'll see you in a minute. Hey everybody, and thank you for tuning into this show. You know, as I work to destroy the stigma that getting high is bad, although I, I don't do drugs, I am high. And if anybody's interested in learning more about getting high without drugs, check out my other podcasts. Um, I actually have a very special one that I called Let's Get High. And please subscribe to my channel. And my website again is highwallclean.org. My name is Eric McCoy. Welcome back to High Wall Clean. You know, this war on drugs that has clearly been a failure, but it has succeeded in the eyes of some, you know, when it really comes to this mantra of prohibition. Prohibition are laws that are enacted by us to control the conduct of them. And for many years, us were the white upper-class politicians that were enacting the laws while them were the, the Asians, the Blacks, the Hispanics. And a lot of this, honestly, was written within some of the laws, like the Harrison Narcotics Act, you know, that was targeting Asians with opium. And, you know, the Blacks were cocaine. The Marijuana Tax Act that was promoted by one of the favorite guys that I love to study was Harry Anslinger, who was very openly racist. And then Nixon, right, identified drug abuse as public enemy number one in the United States. And he launched a failed, a costly, and an inhumane, what he called all-out offensive on Americans that really continues to today. 
you know, the DEA was, you know, in 1973 was a new quote unquote super agency to handle all the aspects of the war on, and we want to say drugs, but actually otherwise peaceful and innocent Americans who voluntarily chose to ingest intoxicants and weeds, which were honestly currently prescribed by the government, which is actually explained in the DEA's website with MKUltra. <laughs> John Elrickman, who was Nixon's counsel, and he was his assistant for the domestic affairs, he revealed in 1994 the real public enemy. And I found this really to be interesting. And what he said was that the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies. He had the anti-war left and he had black people. And he went on to basically say that obviously it's not, we can't make it illegal to fight against a war and we can't make it illegal to be black. So what we're going to do is we're going to pass these laws and we are going to arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. And here's how he ended it. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. There was an article in 2016 that was issued by the Atlantic, and it was, like, it was called Legalize It All, How to Win the War on Drugs. And the author and the reporter was Dan Baum, who wrote, and he said, Nixon's invention of the war on drugs as a political tool was cynical. But every president since then, Democrat or Republican, they found it equally useful for one reason or another. Now, my guest today is Brian Winters, and he is with the American Union. And they have, and I've always said in my podcast that I'm not really as much about solutions as about ideas. And I think he's got some very powerful ideas. The Phoenix Congress, from my understanding, is organizing a block of swing voters, um, an American Union that will vote across party lines in order to advance the Martin Luther King inspired legislative agenda. And they're working to give career politicians an ultimatum, either support the people or lose your job. Am I right on that, Brian? You're absolutely right. Our, uh, our legislative package does three things. It ends poverty, ends mass incarceration, and ends the endless wars. And if politicians want to keep those things, then they should lose their jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. So, so again, I want to thank you for doing this today. Um, and Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, and this is going to be the first real discussion that I've had in the type of political discussions, I guess you could say, and I'm really excited about this. The mass incarceration thing is to me, something obviously that we really need to fight for. And it is very racist. And we know that, you know, if you look at statistics, it's, you know, with black people, you got about 14% of the population, but over 50% of the people that are in prison for drug offenses. You can see it even just in the sentences that they get. 
that a black man and a white man charged with the same crime, the black man is likely to get a 20% longer sentence. It is, there's so much systemic racism in our criminal justice system. Now, obviously you're a fan of legalization. Yes. And you're talking about complete legalization, right? So our legislative package would, is, is federal legislation. So it would totally end the federal drug war. It would repeal all the federal drug laws and let states set their own policies. So some states are going to, are going to like Oregon has just embraced um, this model of decriminalization of, of all drugs. Um, other states are going to have, you know, harsher ideas. But the place to start is at the top. Get the federal government out of the picture and let states make their own decisions. And, uh, you know, if, if you go around and you talk to activists in various states or politicians in various states, the legislators will say, look, we can't do anything because it's illegal on the federal level. Mm -hmm. We can take that excuse away um, with this legislation. Now, decriminalization and legalization are obviously two different things. I mean, you know, alcohol prohibition was decriminalized um, and obviously we saw all the problems with that <laughs> with I mean, we didn't personally, but we've read all about it. <laughs> oh, prohibition didn't work then, and it, it doesn't work now. Um, so this would be legalization on the federal level. Um, the federal government would set standards in place for, for purity and labeling and things like that. Um, and there'd also be a 12% tax on sales uh, that would go to help fund uh, rehab as well as other, other programs to, to help people. Drug use is not harmless but the drug laws cause far, far more harm than the drugs themselves do. Absolutely. You know, we look at, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the big arguments that people have about uh, drugs is that it creates crime or it creates, you know, all of these horrible things. But is it actually the drugs or is it the legality behind it? It can be, it can be both. I mean, to be, to be honest, right? If you've Sometimes people on drugs do some pretty stupid, crazy, violent things. Um, but in large part, that's it's the illegality of them that, uh, you know, uh, I heard somebody, you know, point out recently, like if, you know, if you get your drug dealer and you get you get robbed or whatever and somebody steals your product, you can't call the police. If you're going to if you're going to address it, it's going to take violence to, to try and fix the problem. And uh you know, we can do better by bringing everything from the underground economy up into the open, taxing it and, you know, addressing the costs that it, it does cause to society. But uh, no, the war on drugs is a, is a failure. People recognize that. You know, you talked a few minutes ago about how every president since Nixon has sort of escalated um, or at least not scaled things back. And I think part of the reason is because Nixon was so successful in creating this stereotype that no nobody wants to challenge that stereotype um, the way that that it should be challenged and corrected. Yeah, and that's that stigma that we talk about. I mean, misinformation that that is put out there um, that scares people. You know, I mean, you call you call something you know, and again, he didn't he didn't even call it was the drugs as the you know public enemy number one. It was the you know, drug abuse, right? Which is more targeted to the people, you right. know, and that's the, and that's the fear that was put into people. Oh my God, you know, public enemy number one is the drug abuser. And, uh, 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the misinformation, that misinformation really needs to go. I'm, I'm a recovering addict myself. Um, that's why I sort of high walk clean because I have figured out a way to get high, but I don't do it through drugs now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I can honestly say through my drug use, when I, when I do look back on it, I did do a lot of bad things. But would I have done all of those things if it was legal? Because while I'm using all these drugs, I need to make sure that I can support my habit. The cost of the drugs were enormous, you know, for me to um, support my supply. And obviously, I wasn't getting it from a pharmacy or getting it from any legal source. You know, I'm getting it from a guy that was with the Mexican mafia, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> so, and I look back at that and I think that, you know, so many of those things I wouldn't have done if it was legal, you know, and you look at the, you look at the cost factor of everything and the, the, um, you know, the cost on the United States for drugs being illegal. Obviously we're not getting it taxed. I had a guy on my podcast I did recently, and he was talking about um, an interview he had done with somebody that was, I think it said with the DEA or, or, you know, one, somebody with law enforcement. And he was saying that, through all of the, the drugs that they accumulate, that they actually catch, that it's only like 5% of the drugs that come into this country, or maybe it was 10% or something, but it was a very small percentage and all of the rest of it makes it into your home, you know? And, uh, and then of course you run the risks and dangers of what is in the drugs. You know, we got all the fentanyl, we got all the stuff cut with everything. And that's one of the reasons why all these people are dying. Sure. Like, was it like 80,000 Americans last year from, from overdoses? Yeah. It's a, it's a terrible number. We can do so much better um, by legalizing it. So people know what they're getting. Um, anyways. Uh, so we got, we, we got right into the weeds of, of legalizing drugs because you and I are both, are both passionate about correcting this injustice. That is the war on drugs. But I want to emphasize that's, that's not the whole point of the American union of swing voters. Yes. That's, it's part of a, a larger package um, that addresses Martin Luther King's triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism. And th those things are all interconnected. Uh, poverty is a huge driver of crime, um, of healthcare usage, of all sorts of societal problems. And um, so our, our legislative package would address that with universal basic income. Uh, what it is, is essentially it's an unconditional $300 a week for every adult and $100 a week for every child. And that would lift every single American up above the poverty line. No strings attached. You know, you talked about the, the stigma. Um, you know, we have a safety net that is available for people, but there's a stigma attached to asking for help, to receiving help. And because of that, a lot of people fall through the holes in the safety net. And um, by making it the program universal, we get rid of all the bureaucratic red tape and we make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. If you're giving money to people, they may immediately be buying other things, which will increase demand. Um, and businesses, um, you know, will, with the rise of demand, will obviously need to increase through through inflation and so then things start costing more which in turn will make that $300 a week that you're giving those people even less value more you know less valuable 
So, so like a lot of things, the, there's the answer is gray and not black and white. Um, yes, there will be some inflation. There's inflation now, um, and some some inflation is good. Um, there's a reason why economists target a, like a two percent uh, inflation rate to make sure that the the economy is moving forwards and not stuck in neutral or even worse, sliding backwards through deflation. Um, so we'll still keep that same two percent target for inflation. Um, but will, will costs go up? Sure, in some places. If you take away poverty, if you take away the threat of poverty from, from a lot of these low-wage workers, um, they'll have the power to say no. They'll have the freedom to refuse lousy jobs at lousy wages. And when they, when they exercise that freedom, their employers will probably have to offer them more money in order to get them to do the work. And that can lead to an increase in prices. You know, when we abolished slavery in this after the Civil War, that drove up the price of labor because people that used to do the work for free all of a sudden had to get paid. Um, inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if you're concerned about hyperinflation where things just spiraling upward, that takes um, that takes committed incompetence. We have a lot of incompetence, so... <laughs> Um, we have our fair share, but overall, the economy, you know, works fairly well, I think. Now, is, is this concept for, I mean, so what's the breakup? I mean, so is everybody getting that? What is the income? Is it people that are not employed that only get it? So it's, we style it as a jobs program. Everyone gets an American union job. Every American adds value to this country. Now, maybe things that nobody employs you to do, like this this podcast. Um, you know, you're probably not uh, going to retire off of of this podcast. I don't. You know, what I do with the American Union is something that you know doesn't doesn't necessarily pay very well. People who raise kids, people who you know write blogs, people who edit Wikipedia articles. You know, humans have a desire to to build things, to create, uh, to improve improve their lives, and even if no one's paying them to do it. So we recognize that every American adds value to this country and everyone gets $300 a week just for being an American. Um, so everyone on up all the way up to Jeff Bezos. Now, to be fair, there are taxes involved. And so the people at the top, like Jeff Bezos, are going to be paying a heck of a lot more than $300 a week. Um, but that being said, this is about bringing us together as Americans. You know, Republicans and Democrats love to divide us and to pit us against each other, but we're all Americans. And so we can all benefit from this, this program. It's universal. So where does this money come from? Good question. So uh, the funding mechanism we have in our, in our 2020 legislative proposal comes from three sources. Uh, one is a value added tax of 15%. Uh, and the value added tax is something that almost every other industrialized country uses. Uh, it's a, an efficient way of taking a slice of the economy. Um, the second thing that it, the second funding me mechanism is a fee and dividend on pollution, uh, specifically on carbon and on plastic. So as companies pollute, uh, they pay a fee for that privilege for the damage they cause to our, our the shared resources to the, our environment. And then all that money gets redistributed back out um, 
So everyone gets an equal share. If you pollute less than average, you keep the difference. If you pollute more than average, then you're, you're paying into the system. And the third funding mechanism is new money. Um, as, our, as our country grows and as our economy grows, we need more dollars in circulation. Um, unfortunately, right now, we're, we're creating it through debt and we're giving it to the big banks and then paying hundreds of billions of dollars a year in interest on it. Um, Congress has the constitutional authority to, to create money directly without debt. Uh, Abraham Lincoln did this during the Civil War. And we can do that and then rather than give it to the banks, give every American an equal share. And so between those three things, we can create 300 million American union jobs and lift every single American up out of poverty and help another 100 million more who are, who are struggling. And 2020 was a really tough year for a lot of people. What do you define as the poverty level, though? I mean, 1,200 a month. Um, the Census Bureau's official number is around $13,000 for, uh, for one adult, um, and then about uh, 26000 for a family of four. Um, so this would, this would guarantee that every American at least has enough resources to, to be above the poverty level. $15,600 a year per adult, $5,200 a year per child. But there is no way that the homeless, and there are people, you know, I mean, if it's a single person that's homeless, is going to be able to get an apartment. So, well, this is a, so this, the poverty line is a sense, is a national average. The cost of living is in different across the country. Um, so you're right. Like in New York City, uh, $15,000 a year is, is not enough to, uh, in, in New York City, but in large parts of the country, it is, um, especially, you know, if you have a, you know, if you have a family or something there, there are thousands of homes uh, available across the Midwest for, you know, under $50,000. Um, most of the country is very affordable, uh, just not as much by the coasts. California, and, California is not, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, we pay so many taxes out here. It's crazy. Your American Union job is unconditional. It's attached to you no matter where you live. Um, so a lot of the benefits that we, we give people now to try and keep them out of poverty are, you know, specific. Like, um, you know, if you got Section 8 housing or something, right, you've got you've to kind of stay in one place in order to keep receiving this benefit. So with your American Union job, you're free to move around the country. You can move to places with, with lower costs of living and help revitalize the economies of a lot of these these smaller Midwest towns that are just looking to would love to have more people with disposable income uh, come live in their towns and, and uh, spend their money. You know, when we look at the homeless, um, you know, and here's another thing just to I guess kind of think about, but there's a good percentage of our homeless that are mentally ill. Um, there are there are a good percentage of our homeless that are um, don't want to live in a place. They like being homeless. Um, you know, we have good percentage, obviously they're on drugs. Um, you know, you do have obviously some that would love to be able to have a place, you know, um, this, you know, obviously this would not end homelessness, um, because you are going to have people that are not going to do it. The mentally ill are going to be, um, very difficult in some cases. Um, uh, you know, I mean, in some cases, just the ability to even understand paying rent is 
not going to make sense to them. People that have severe schizophrenia or things in, in that arena. Um, so that, that's something to think about, you know. Yeah, universal basic income doesn't solve every single problem, um, but it solves an awful lot by just ensuring that people have some money um, to, to meet their needs every single week without, without strings attached. People are, are generally capable. Um, and and you're, you're correct that some people, um, because of mental issues, maybe aren't capable or, um, or just that some people will make bad decisions. That's, that's okay. I mean, you're, you're entitled to make your own bad decisions. You know, I, I know I've made my, my fair share, but, um, but universal basic income empowers you to make those decisions for yourself instead of having the government tell you what you can and can't do. Um, how much support are you getting? I mean, how, how, um, how effective is your message right now? So I spent uh, six weeks in Georgia after the 2020 election trying to build support for the American Union um, to, to you know, be able to decide the balance of power in the U.S. Senate and, uh, and use that as leverage to get this passed. And as I talk to people, you know, come to the grocery store, you know, outside of you know, shopping centers and things like that, there is an awful lot of frustrated people in this country, um, parents especially. Um, you know, I've got kids and, and as responsible adults, we don't want our children to inherit these problems. We would love to see them solved and we don't know how, um, but there is a way if we work together uh, as a block of swing voters, we can leverage that into action. Um, and so to the other part of your question is, you know, is how, what kind of support is there for these things? And as we said, Martin Luther identified these as the, the triple evils because they're interconnected, but each of these issues has its own strong set of advocates, uh, people who, who are, want to end poverty, people who want to see criminal justice reform and peace advocates, um, sort of the ones that Nixon tried to demonize 50 years ago. Uh, there are a lot of passionate activists. And so by bringing them together under this one umbrella and pooling our, our resources and our votes, uh, we, can, we can improve the status quo for everyone. Now, the other thing that was on your, and I know with Martin Luther King, you mentioned um, the military, you know, militarism, ending the endless wars. Um, and you're obviously about uh, making the military smaller. Yes. Um, and again, this is something, this was some of the things that Donald Trump, um, you know, talked about repeatedly. So it has a lot of support, um, on the Republican side and on, on the democratic side. Um, the American people, we've been at war for way, way too long. Uh, you know, 25% of adults in this country had never known a time when America didn't have a, a foreign war going on. Um, so we're tired of it. It's time to end them. It's time to bring our troops home. And um, yes, so specifically, this legislation would repeal the 2001-2002 the authorizations for military force. It would require a 10% cut in the military budget each year for four years, um, which at our current spending levels would put us back to 2004. Um, and then, you know, as you might know, we have hundreds and hundreds of foreign military bases. Uh, and so this would require the Secretary of Defense to hold a local referendum around each of those bases and, and they ask the local population, do you want us here? And if the people say no, then we respect their decision and we close our base and, and come home and start with that as our, our low hanging fruit. And once we identify where the people are willing to have 
uh, a, a military base, then uh, you know, we, can, we can deal with that later. But the low-hanging fruit is if they don't want us there, then we shouldn't be there. Yeah, it's, why are we the police of the world? That's a, that has a, we could do a whole show on that. Um, but uh, we, sh we shouldn't be. Um, we should be promoting democracy and freedom and, and all those things. But uh, not, not picking winners and losers and uh, justifying it with, with, more, with uh, military force. Yeah, and the reason that, that Martin Luther King identified these things as inter being interconnected was because of you know the 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 resources uh, like oil that uh, are so frequently the cause of a lot of these military interventions. Yeah, I know this is you know it is an interesting time because you know we we do have this huge divide in this country and you know, it seemed to have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse, you know, as time had gone on. And it's almost kind of really difficult to even interpret what, you know, where people stand with certain things nowadays. Um, and I know with, with yours, I was reading in, you know, obviously um, maintaining the right for abortion, right? Maintaining, uh, you know, not, you know, returning Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, obviously standing with the Second Amendment, you know, the right to bear arms, but but also at the same time putting yeah. the background check um, to hopefully make sure that some people are safe, that they're not, you know, um, have serious mental issues or things of that nature to own a gun. Um, yeah, the, the goal of this legislation is to solve these problems or address the problems as best we can. And and um, so, and guns and abortion are two of the very polarizing issues that, again, Republicans and Democrats use to, to drive us apart. They are wedge issues. And so, but if you get down to what are the, what are the real problems that people want to solve? Why are people concerned about those? Um, we can address them. We can bring down the number of gun deaths um, through universal basic income. Most gun deaths are, de are suicides. Uh, I don't know how how many of your viewers know that, but uh, the 46,000 gun deaths that we have on an average year, most are suicides. Yeah. Those are deaths of despair. And by, with universal basic income, giving everyone a solid economic floor, we can, we can bring those, those deaths down. One of the other, and then on the other side, abortions. Um, of the, if you ask the women who seek abortions, two thirds of them say they can't afford the baby. Mm -hmm. And we can fix that problem with universal basic income. We can bring down the deaths. And, and both of these things, you know, the rhetoric on both sides is, well, we're going to ban abortions or we're going to ban guns. And that's just not realistic in the 21st century. We have 3D printed guns. And when it comes to abortions, 40% last year were pharmaceutical. And again, if the drug war has taught us anything, you can't stop people from getting, getting drugs if they want them. We're never going to get these numbers down to zero. But with common sense, we can move move the needle in the right direction and re and reduce the number of needless deaths. So by trying to get to the core issues and solve the the, the real problems, um, can, I mean you can you know make abortion illegal, but it's not going to. I mean people are going to use coat hangers and and have abortions. I mean you, you know you make drugs illegal. There's drugs everywhere. You know, I mean, it's you know, I can probably go next door to my house and probably find plenty of drugs. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't think they do, but you never know. <laughs> and 
So let's let's empower people to make better decisions. Like, you know, we, we talk about GDP as if this were some magical uh, metric that if, if GDP is up, our gross domestic product is up, that everything is wonderful in the country. And it's not, that's not an accurate reflection of, of people's day-to-day lives. You know, I wish there was a way that we could measure what percentage of women who got a, a positive uh, pregnancy test, what percentage of them feel joy when they see that? How many of them are happy to bring a, a child when they find out they're going to bring a child into this world? And let's maximize that number. I think that's a much better metric of, of what the real quality of life is in our, our country. Yeah, the problem so, being, too, and, you know, we saw this. I mean, actually, Republicans were really kind of pushing on this, but, you know, that we're not going to fund, uh, you know, any money for um, education on, um, you know, sex education, you know, uh, you know, handing out condoms. I mean, this has been a, another big ridiculous thing in my mind is that we're not going to educate our youth about condoms or safe sex because it's going to promote sex, which is absolutely absurd. It's going to promote safe sex. It's not going to end sex. They're going to have sex, but then they're going to get pregnant because they don't know anything about condoms. And to me, that is, again, my, my wife works at Planned Parenthood. You know, the, the uh, bedrock of hatred of, you know, certain places. She doesn't actually, she, she does billing. She doesn't have anything to do with actually doing any of the services. <laughs> but so she sees all of the, you know, the rhetoric and, and um, you know, all the laws that are attempted to get passed to shut them down. Um, you know, I mean, you go into a Planned Parenthood office and they have a basket of free condoms, you know, which is fantastic because they would much rather see safe sex and not getting pregnant than having to do an abortion, you know, and yes, that is a service they provide, but it's not something they like and they promote, (laughs) you know, it's just, it is something that they do, you know, provide. And, and that is something that I think really needs to be looked at, you know, is that we need to start having conversations about, you know, about safe sex, you know, about, drugs, you know, even in our, our high schools and going in there, don't just, I mean, the, the idea of just say no is the most absurd thing ever. We just need to have, I remember going through Nancy Reagan and the, the dare program back in the eighties. Absolutely, right? yeah. <laughs> We're probably around the same age. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And so that, that whole concept, I mean, we need to have just open, honest communication. You know, I met the last podcast I did, I was talking literally about this idea that, you know, we are, you know, to go into a school and to say drugs are bad. And then you've got a whole group of people that have done drugs and they're like, this guy doesn't know what he's fucking talking about. You know, I've done them and they're great. Their ears shut up and they stop listening. But if I go, if I go in and say, you know what? I love to get high, man. Just so you know. Now I found a great way to do it without drugs. You know, their ears are going to at least open up. Maybe this guy knows what he's talking about, you know? And so having honest, open communication, I think, is a huge part to not necessarily solving these problems, but helping in that arena. I, I, I completely agree. Uh, that's the way I try and raise my kids with, you know, open, honest communication, give them the information that, that they need to make good choices. Um, that, that's, that's what we want all adults to do, right, is to make the right decision even when nobody's watching. Even if the government isn't going to punish them uh, for taking drugs, 
let's try and empower them to make those good decisions without the threat of government force. Yeah, and that's, you know, people, people don't do drugs because they're illegal. I mean, that, that's something too. Like, you know, I look at, you know, you got, I mean, what's the percentage of people that use drugs? You know, I mean, you're probably like what, 8%, 9%, you know, um, I mean, the number is much bigger if you calculate alcohol and, you know, as far as abusing, you know, the abusing aspect, but there's a lot more people that don't abuse drugs or alcohol than do, you know, and I look at all the people that don't do it. They don't do it because of them being illegal. You know, they do it because they decided that, you know what, this isn't good for me and this is not something that's going to work. And so I'm going to choose not to do it. Are you you familiar with the rat park experiment? The rat? Rat park. The uh, basically these researchers, they uh, put rats in cages and gave them their choice of regular water or like cocaine laced water. And uh, the rats got themselves addicted pretty quick. And then they took those rats and they put them in a giant uh a giant area like you know a rat park that is like you know 12 feet in square and lots of other rats to play with and gave them the same choice and those rats very quickly decided they didn't need cocaine to keep themselves entertained because they could have happy fulfilling lives running around being socially engaged and you know being involved in the environment once they got out of that cage and so if (laughs) You know, so this this just reinforces what you say. You know, if you, if people are in a bad situation, drugs suddenly seem maybe more appealing as an escape. But let's let's improve the situation for people. Well, studies um, so on that, the, studies on the Vietnam War were the same thing. You know, they had done. You know, that was Nixon again. Thing. You know, it was like, oh my God, all our all our troops are on heroin, which a lot of them were while they were in Vietnam, and when they came home a good majority of them stopped once they got home because now all of a sudden, okay, I don't need that anymore. (laughs) You know, there are the select few of us that, you know, aren't, don't have that stop switch. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I don't do anything because I don't have a great stop switch. (laughs) But, but yeah, reducing people's stress um, definitely helps them make, make better decisions. Um, so going back to, to basic income uh, briefly, they were, they were doing a study in North Carolina uh, back in the 90s, uh, studying uh, kids living in poverty and, uh, and observing their, their household lives. And uh, about a couple of years into the study, a, a casino opened up on the Indian reservation. And so a quarter of the participants, suddenly their, their household income went up and, and these kids you know, started having better home lives. And so they, they were able to compare the two groups and um, bring that basic income into those households. Like the parents reported using less drugs and alcohol. The kids were more likely to grow up and, and have stable jobs. Their grades went up. Um, childhood poverty causes a lifetime of effects. And if we fix that, uh, it, it avoids a lot of problems uh, further down the road. Uh, it's well, I agree. I mean, once you're so much better as a, as a country, we have, we have, we are so capable as a country of, of dealing with these things. We just need a better way to, to organize and do it. And the Republicans and Democrats um, are not getting it. Well, done. they have different agendas. I mean, they, you know, and, and sometimes it's like, they just seem like they want to argue just for the point of arguing, you know, oh, I want to do this. So we're not going to do it because they're saying that, you know, and even though some Absolutely. of it could be great ideas. 
I mean, we hear this all the time. And uh, yeah, poverty, you know, when people are in it, it's hard to get out of it. And that's where I think, you know, what you're talking about and what you're trying to do, um, I think will have a big impact potentially um, for a lot of people. You know, obviously there will be some that, you know, due to certain reasons, you know, it won't work, mental illness or things of that nature. But um, I definitely think it'll help a lot of people uh, because, yeah, I mean, when you're deep into poverty, how do you get out? I mean, you can't go to college, you know, you can't, you know, you got to get a job full time. So at least you can pay for, you know, your, your, your wife, you're even married or, you know, um, things of, like that. And, and it's difficult to do. It is. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's unnecessarily difficult. And it, it, it puts a strain on individuals. Um, you know, they just, just uh, released a study in India where, you know, they looked at people who were living in poverty and uh, people who were, um, anyways, they found that, that people were more productive when they, they made less mistakes at work, when they weren't worried about how they were going to pay their rent. Um, you know, people do better on IQ tests when they're not stressed out about money. Um, there's, you know, you can, when you put somebody into that, that survival mode, sure, maybe for a little while you get a burst of adrenaline and, and, you know, maybe you you do okay, but you can't keep that up forever. And poverty in this country, it just, it wears on people because like you say, there's, there's so many traps and ways that, that they, they, they keep you down. So we, we can fix it if we work together. Yeah. So as far as um, supporting you guys, what, what can people do to, um, and what, what is the, you know, if they want to join your um, organization? So visit anamericanunion.com and sign up uh, for our newsletter or sign up to be a member of the American Union. Um, so let me tell you a little, a little more about, about this. So these are these problems that we can solve. Um, we're capable of solving them and we're choosing not to as a nation. These are policy choices that we've made. And we should be ashamed that we have made these policy choices that, that leave 40 million Americans living below the poverty line. We should be ashamed that we incarcerate more of our citizens than any other country on this planet. We be, should be ashamed of the amount of harm that we have caused all around this planet with our, with our military. Um, and so we have a moral duty to fix these things. And so each month there is a fast of moral pressure, a group fast on the 15th and to participate, abstain from food for 24 hours. This is, this is a, a shared self-sacrifice in the style of Gandhi, uh, the way that he used national days of fasting to unify his country, the Hindus and Muslims who are fighting. He found a way to bring them together so that they could address uh, the, the to, to fight for independence against the, the British. Um, can I ask you, have you, have you ever tried fasting? I have not. <laughs> well, uh, other than when I was on methamphetamine, but it, you know. <laughs> um, and so in that case, yeah, maybe it was more of a, an accidental going without food for 24 hours than an intention. You, you just forget. Forget. Okay. <laughs> so, so to, to put that intention into your day to say, I'm going to choose not to eat for 24 hours. Um, it's not a difficult thing. Um, like our bodies, we're not going to starve to death in 24 hours. It's more a mental thing. It's a, it's a choice. And that collective intention um, is, is what gives this its power. 
um, you know, to manifest that together and to use the hashtag fast for peace on social media, um, direct this, you know, we, you know, eating is one of those, those, uh, shared human experiences, right? Everybody knows what it's like to be hungry. Um, and it's free. It has benefits for your health. It's something everybody can participate in. Uh, it's one of the things that we're focused on this year. Um, actually, Eric is, is doing outreach to incarcerated Americans and inviting them to participate as well. Um, not because they can go out and vote necessarily, but because they're Americans who should be represented and sh the American Union wants to represent them too. Um, so how does this make them care? How, does, how do they care? How does this make them care? So uh, I guess two ways. Um, one, it demonstrates that we're people who aren't just doing something on social media, that we're actually doing something in our own personal lives. Um, back in 2019, uh, somebody proposed on Facebook that, that they storm Area 51. That's this place in Nevada where they're supposed to keep all the alien bodies and all that stuff. And so 2 million people on Facebook said, yeah, let's go storm Area 51. And the government had to respond. They had to take, you know, they had to assume that all those people were going to take action and um, they had to respond. So how many people can, will do more than just like something on Facebook or retweet something, but will actually do something in their own uh, personal life and demonstrate their sincerity and their commitment to ending poverty, ending mass incarceration and ending the endless wars. Um, and so that, that is a group uh, event um, demonstrates our, our sincerity. Uh, and politicians want to win. They want to get reelected, right? You know, it's been said the worst thing that can happen for a, to a politician is that somebody else wins the office that they want. Uh, when, they, when they know that their choices are meeting our terms or losing, they will meet our terms. Okay. That's how we can win a better social contact for everyone is by unionizing as swing voters. Well, is there anything you'd like to say that we haven't talked about? Um, <laughs> there's all sorts of things I would like to say. Uh, so ending the drug war is just one small part of, of uh, the police and prison reforms. This legislation, you know, you know, I was, I was one of many, many tens of millions of Americans who were shocked by George Floyd's death last year. And there really hasn't been any big changes as a result. Our legislative package has a number of police reforms. Um, we end, end cash bail. Um, we improve, improve policing. We stop the letting military surplus go to police departments. Um, there's also a lot of prison reforms uh, that are included in this legislation. We end federal mandatory minimums. Um, we restore uh, access to Pell Grants. Uh, you know, given right now, it's difficult for, or impossible for prisoners to get access to Pell Grants. And, you know, as you probably know, education is, is one of, is a proven method of reducing re, re, recidivism. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we can, all these things are connected. Um, and ending the drug war is just a part of building a better America. Um, but it, any big change like this takes sacrifice. And so, as people are willing to show, uh, they're willing to make a sacrifice by participating in the fast. Uh, we'll put the moral pressure on Washington to, to solve these problems.
So visit anamericanunion.com, sign up for our newsletter. You can join. Uh, it's $5 a year uh, to be a member uh, if you want um, and tell your friends. And you said the fast is on the 15th of every month? The 15th of every month, yeah. Um, so it starts on January 15th each year, which is Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday and, um, and goes on from there. Every month. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, I've been doing this for, for several years now, and uh, it's a good, good habit to get into, um, to just one, once a month, just step back, take a break from um, just as it, it, it's nice too in the middle of the month, because it sort of allows you to kind of reevaluate how your month is going and, and reset uh, as, as needed. But um, some months it's easier than others. <laughs> Um, on months that the 15th falls on, on a Saturday, uh, participation goes way down. <laughs> People are more likely to do it in the, the middle of the week, maybe when they're at work and they're busy. Um, but uh, Now, there are people out there that have things like hypoglycemia, though. That may not be a good thing. Yeah, you're correct. There are some people that, um, you know, if you're pregnant or nursing or if you have type 1 diabetes, there's a handful of, of you know, conditions and things where you shouldn't participate. Listen to your body. If you're not sure if just drinking water for 24 hours is safe for you, ask your doctor. Um, and in that case, uh, uh, eating, eating fruit or drinking juice uh, is an acceptable way to, to participate. Um, it's what Gandhi recommended. Um, the fast is also any 24 hours. Gandhi recommended a dinner to dinner fast. So you can have dinner on the night of the 14th and then go 24 hours, have dinner on the night of the 15th. So you, you never go to bed hungry. Um, there's, you know, there's ways to minimize it, but by putting that, building this collective intention um, around addressing Martin Luther King's triple evils. Um, that's, that's the goal. Well, well, Hey, I want to thank you very much for coming on here. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciated the opportunity and I have a feeling we could, we could talk a lot more about uh, the drug war and, and uh, we could probably uh, go on and on <laughs> and might have you on later. Maybe we'll have you back on another time. Uh, sounds good. Uh, yeah. Let me, then we can let me know if you've, if you've uh, given this a shot, the fasting for 24 hours and uh, I'd love to hear about what your experience. Yeah. Let me, is. let me think about that. <laughs> Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of High Wall Clean. Keep getting high, and I'll see you guys soon. Bye. Darkness.